disciples, and he said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? You remember that John, was a, he was a kind of a firebrand guy. Like he, was, he was out there uh, wearing camel's hair, eating locusts and, and honey. Like he's an eccentric kind of guy, and he's, he's yelling at people like, who told you to repent, you, you know, you, you, you bag of snakes? And like, he, he's, he's, uh, he's really out there and, and telling people to repent over and over again. And he does it with great boldness. And he says, the kingdom of heaven, it's at hand. You need to turn from your sin and be baptized. He was a man who, who was, he was ready to, to say and pronounce that the kingdom was, was ready and it was prepared and it was in their midst. He was a man who, who looked forward with expectancy and great hope of the one that he was preparing the way for, the, the one to come. You can hear this in his preaching. If you look back in Matthew chapter 3, listen to what John says. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff will he will burn up with unquenchable fire. John has this high view of the one to come. Not a low view. It's, it's a great expectation and a, and a holy view of this God, one who's going to come and he's going to baptize with fire and, and water and he's going to judge and the, he's going to gather the chaff and it's going to be burned up and he's going to gather the wheat. I mean, he has a high and holy view of the one who is to come. And when Jesus comes to John to be baptized, listen to what John does. Jesus came from Galilee, verse 13, to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? And notice he, he recognizes him. Clear recognition of who this one is. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. In other words, not only does John recognize him before the baptism, he knows clearly who this one is and says, like, I'm not even worthy to touch your sandals. I don't, shouldn't be baptizing you. You're the one to come. This is a high and holy view of the one to come, of Jesus himself. And then after that, he gets even more because the heavens split open. He hears a voice. He sees a dove. And so again, it's like more confirmation, more clarity that Jesus is the one that you've been preparing the way for. He has so much clarity that he would say later in John chapter 3, verse 30, he says, I need to decrease, but he needs to increase. That's clarity of his ministry in light of Jesus' ministry, of his life in light of Jesus' life. Such clarity. But we're in Matthew chapter 11, not Matthew chapter 3. And now John's question is a little bit different. He questions the same Jesus that he saw baptized. The same Jesus that he saw the dove, the Holy Spirit descend upon. The same one that he heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He questions that Jesus. And he says, are you the one? And he uses the same exact words from chapter 3 verse 11. The clarity that he had about you're the one to come? It's the same question he has. Are you the one to come? Are you, he's asking, are you the Messiah, the one that we've been looking for? 
Whereas John chapter, or Matthew chapter 3, John is full of clarity and affirmation. We're in Matthew chapter 11. And John is no longer full of certainty. So we need to question, like, what had happened to John to have moved him from the certainty that he had in chapter 3? So much so that he would be willing to say to his disciples, yeah, follow him. You need to go after him because he needs to increase and my ministry needs to decrease because people need to be following after him. What happened to that clarity that he had then to move him to here to where now he's asking, "Are, are you even the one? I think there's two things that Matthew 11, 2 and 3 point out to us that, that kind of help us understand the picture a little bit. In verse 2, it says that John heard in prison. So his circumstances. His circumstances are, are, are bleeding into his view of the one to come. John is in prison. And why is he in prison? For being faithful to his charge, right? To, to preparing the way for Jesus, faithfully calling out sin, calling men to repent and saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's for those things for which John is imprisoned. Good things, faithful work, good ministry unto the Lord. And at this point in Matthew chapter 11, we don't know for sure, but maybe he's been there for months. Can't imagine that'd be a great place to sit for a long period of time. And he's been there for months preaching to crowds, baptizing people in the Jordan with all this momentum. That's in the past. That's months behind him. The one he prepared for had come, and he sits in prison. He didn't get to just ride off quietly into the sunset because his job had been done, and now he'd, he'd, he'd accomplished what the Lord had sent him to do, and now he gets to kind of just bask in the, in the glow of victory because he's passed the baton on to the one he really was meant to point to in the first place, and now he gets to just kind of revel in the victory that Jesus has taken the charge for. No, he gets to sit in prison. He's paying for his faithfulness. And my guess is that John starts to wrestle with some doubt. He lacks some clarity. The clarity that he had in chapter 3 is now faded as he languishes in prison, groans in prison. And circumstances can do that, can't they? They have a way of of bleeding into our view of almost everything, of of clouding the clarity that we once had, of of kind of stimulating any sort of doubts and fears and anxieties and questions that we already had within us. They have a way of, of stirring those things up within us. Recently, I've been reading... C.S. Lewis's uh, Screwtape Letters. And in that, it's, it's a, a demons writing to each other to tempt their subject. And, and Screwtape is kind of the over-demon, and he's writing to Wormwood. And he wants Wormwood to confuse and manipulate his patient with what is real. Uh, he, he says there's all sorts of confusion about what's real for, for, the, for the people on earth, that sometimes there's this sense of what's fact, what's intellectual knowledge, and then sometimes there's, there's what's like emotional knowledge, like what you feel to be true, what you feel to be real. And so he says, well, it doesn't seem like he's open to this intellectual t- attack. He's, he's got that on firm foundation, so let's go for the emotional. Let's make him feel something is real. And, and here's what it says. It turns on making him feel when he first sees... now. It, this is World War I and II kind of time frame. So imagine, uh, I cut out some of the actual quote, but imagine what this would be. When he first sees human remains, that this is what the world is really like. And that all his religion has been a fantasy. Now maybe John 
as he sits in prison, is wrestling with something along these lines. Like once, once I knew that Jesus was the one, but here I am sitting in prison, and this feels more real than all that whatever fantasy of a ministry I had where people were coming to me and be baptized, and I was pointing them to Jesus, the, the Lamb of God. Now that doesn't feel so real. This feels real. I'm languishing in prison. I'm groaning here in prison. Maybe John's prison walls... And all that he'd seen and heard there, which couldn't have been great stuff of justice, right? We know Herod. He was not a great guy. All that he'd seen and heard there had kind of clouded his, his view of the world. It seeped into his view of who Jesus is. And it seemed to him probably like what things are really like. I was talking about those things out there, but in here is where I'm really feeling what things are really like. Maybe his time in prison had demoralized him so much that he couldn't see clearly anymore. Maybe he was kind of like his namesake, Elijah. You remember the story of Elijah. He goes up on Mount Carmel and he has this grand finale, like this battle with the prophets of Baal, and he wins, like triumphantly wins the battle. And what happens right after that? That didn't feel very real to him because he goes into the desert and he asks God if he can die. Maybe John's in line with Elijah a bit here, and he starts to wonder, is all this Jesus stuff and the one to come, is that just a fantasy and this actually the real thing? Circumstances, especially difficult circumstances, can stimulate doubt, cloud clarity, can lead us to wrestling with really tough questions. Maybe that's Christmas for some of us. And the reality of Jesus as the Savior is in question as the circumstances of life, which we know haven't stopped for Christmas break, or Christmas Day, or the lighting of our Advent candles even this morning, the reality of all that stuff continue to press in. Maybe those things this morning seem more real than the things that we're reading from this text. And if that's you, know that Jesus is going to respond. But notice, I think this is helpful, what John does with his fears, what he does with his doubts, and what he does with his question. He, he takes them to Jesus. He had some clarity, enough to say like, I want to send this question to him. He's unsure. He has some doubt. But he wants to hear from Jesus. And, and that's exactly where we should take it. In Jesus, we have one who we say from Isaiah 42, verse 3, he, he doesn't break a bruised reed. He, he doesn't want to take our questions and then just shove them back in our face and give us the stiff arm. He, he won't quench a, a faintly burning wick. He, he is gentle. He is kind. You can take your doubts, your fears, your questions to him. And that's what John does here. Now, it wasn't the only factor. His circumstances weren't the only factor from verse 2 that led John to question Jesus. I think there's another. If you look in verse 3, he says, uh, after or verse 2 and 3, he, he hears in prison about the deeds of the Christ and he sent word by his disciples said, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? All right, so he has circumstances that are leading to this, but he also has some expectations. Are you the, the Christ? Notice that he had heard about these deeds before he did this. It's not despite the deeds of Jesus that he questions, but in, in light of the deeds that he hears about Jesus that he asks the question. He hears the deeds of Jesus and then he asks the question. So he's not in dark about Jesus' work, in the dark about Jesus' work. He knows about him. He's aware of him. He's heard about him. And he still asks the question. 
So let's think about Jesus' work in, in, in Matthew. Here's what we have, just real quickly in Matthew. In chapter 3, he, he baptizes Jesus. The heavens open like a dove descends. He hears voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. That's, that's a mighty thing. In chapters 5 through 7, Jesus, this is the Sermon on the Mount, he preaches and teaches with authority. Like, you can imagine the crowd as they're listening, like, man, we've never heard anyone like this. That's what they were saying. In chapter 8, Jesus heals a leper and a paralyzed servant and, Je- and Peter's mother-in-law and many other sick people. He casts out demons. Chapter 9, he restores a girl who had died. He heals a woman who had this discharge of blood for many years. He heals a few blind men and a mute. Right, that's just a really quick fly-through of the first eight verses or eight, nine chapters of Matthew. And that's no small amount of massive miracles. Just in a a few chapters. Likely, all these were known to John. He'd heard about these things. And you look at that list of like, oh, he's healing lepers and the paralyzed and casting out demons. He's restoring even a girl from the dead and and blind men. Like, no one has ever heard of deeds like this. And so you got to go, like, what about that list makes you think that that Jesus, the one that you said was the one with such clarity, and now your question, what, what about that list makes you question your clarity that you had? It seems like those things would be like, of course he's the one. Look at what he's doing. Look at what he's saying. It's not what John does with it. It makes him question. Now, John, we know, understood himself to be the forerunner, the one who prepares the way for the Messiah. He told this to the officials, the Jewish officials, clearly, like, I'm not the one, I'm just preparing the way. And we know that Isaiah tells us much, not only about John's role, but about the Messiah, the one who is to come. And surely the work of Isaiah would have built into John expectations of the Messiah to come. Such as this. This is a a famous Christmas text, right? In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government of his reign, of his rule, and of his peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He has great expectations that here's going to come one who's going to be like David. He's going to reign in the, in the kingly uh, line of David, rule and have this government that has no end. The government's going to be upon his shoulders. He's going to be this great and mighty king, just like David. It's going to be the work of the Lord. Now, Isaiah, if you go from there on, you're going to see lots of judgment and even cycles of judgment. Judgment on the nations, judgment on Israel, even exile that's soon to come for them. In Isaiah chapter 40, it kind of shifts. Isaiah chapter 40, do you remember what happens? There's this great Good news that goes out to the people of God. As if they're kind of coming back from exile, here's what it says. Comfort. Comfort my people. And Isaiah says what's going to come, including that John's going to prepare the way for Jesus and that he is going to come after him because he's preparing the way for one who is to come. And if you read Isaiah 40 and following, all those chapters, they're great chapters. You want to see a sovereign God, a great God, a magnificent God. Go from Isaiah 40 and just start reading to the end. I mean, and these are building in the expectations of John for who the Messiah is to come. We could look at one. Isaiah chapter 61 says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, 
to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And all of this bleeds into John's preaching and teaching. In John chapter th- or Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, it says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but there's one coming. He's going to be mightier than I am. I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he's going to clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Notice what John is expecting. He's listened to Isaiah. He's heard those words, and he starts preparing the way, and he's expecting something. He expects the, the axe, he says, it's laid at the root. That's, a, that's an image of judgment. The winnowing fork is, is at hand. So he expects it to be, he's going to take the fork and throw into the air what needs to be thrown into the air. The chaff is going to be burned up and the wheat he's going to gather into the barn. Another image of judgment. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Again, judgment. And there's going to be a separation between those who are the Lord's and those who are not. And, and John spoke of these things as if they're upon them. They're imminent. They're with them now. He spoke of judgment that was on them and blessing that was upon them as if they were at hand in his teaching and preaching in the coming of the Messiah. But where are they now? John's in prison. Nothing has changed, it seems to him. In fact, things got, when, from when he preached that, they got way worse for him. He had great expectations. This is the one to come, and here he's come. And the deeds of Christ look a little bit different, especially from prison, when that's your expectation. I mean, John has been sitting there, and he's had even more time likely to meditate on things like from Isaiah meditate on the deeds of Jesus. And, and as he does that, as he thinks about these things, something seems off with what he's hearing. One commentator says it well, I think. What was Jesus doing? Puzzling things from John's viewpoint, preaching, healing, and driving out demons. And what is his message of the kingdom? The Beatitudes, the parables of the gracious rule of God, prospects of feasting in the kingdom of God. Where was the thunder of judgment? Where was the rebuke of the wicked? Why this use of power over demons, but not over evil men? Why did Jesus consort with them in their feasting? Why did he allow the prophet of God's righteous wrath against sin to rot in Herod's jail without a word of protest? Could this possibly be the Messiah? His difficult circumstances, his unmet expectations, they kind of collide in his prison cell as he sits there as one who's faithful, knowing that the promised one is going to release captives. And he's thinking, no release for me? Hearing of Herod's deeds and how he's carrying out this injustice on the earth, and as he languishes in prison as a part of that, and he's thinking, could that be the one if I'm rotting here? How many times had he prayed for release? Or the overthrow of his enemies? Or the, the questioning of what's going on at the time? He might have thought, yeah, I hear about Jesus' words and actions, and those, those might be okay, but that's not what we were expecting. Where's the kingdom of God? Where's this judgment that I had spoken of because Isaiah spoke of it? Where did that go? Again, it wasn't despite hearing about Jesus' deeds that John questions Jesus. It was because of Jesus' deeds. That's why he asked, shall we look for another? That is another of a different kind because you might not be the right kind. He has second thoughts. Now, to be fair to John here, 
most had wrong expectations of the one who was to come. Because I think that most were off on what was really wrong. What's really wrong with the world? What's really the problem? And what do we need in a Messiah, in the one to come? Many expectations were for a king like David, and that is well-founded. But what they were wanting was that king to overthrow their enemies. Get rid of the Roman rule that's over us, and then take care of the, the geopolitical situation to where we can be back where we are supposed to be. And then what they wanted was a, a, a geopolitical ruler, a, a king who would reign about like Caesar, only a little bit more holy than that. And so that the, the Jews could reign and rule. That was their expectation. They wanted to be set free from the lords that were over them, and they wanted a lord to reign and rule over them in victory. But they failed to recognize so often that they didn't just need to overthrow the lords of Rome and to reign in victory with a the king. They needed new hearts, a sacrifice for sin. They needed the greatest enemy of all, death, defeated. They didn't need a new attack system. They didn't need the overthrow of Rome. They needed the overthrow of sin and death. Amen. And their expectations were for the former and not the latter. Now, our expectations and our hopes are not formed like theirs were. But our expectations and hope for what a Savior is and will be, for who Jesus is and will be, are just as off at times, are they not? And we think of Jesus as one who's just going to kind of give a stamp of approval on our lifestyle because he's a really kind guy. Or one who, who's going to just give us things when we ask because he said something like that in his word. And so if we ask for it, he's, he's going to grant it. Or he's going to support our agenda. Surely he's on our side, right? How easy is that to get into? And what happens then when we encounter the real Jesus that's revealed to us in the word? who is a Jesus who doesn't always approve of our way of life, who doesn't always just give us exactly what we ask because we ask for our own selfish ambitions, who, who doesn't just support our agenda because he's got a better agenda. What happens when we encounter the real Jesus? When what we thought he was going to be and what we heard maybe and were taught he was going to be, he doesn't end up being. When that happens, we're going to meet expectation. We're going to have all sorts of disappointments because of those false expectations. We need to remember that John questioned after hearing about Jesus' deeds, when he, he thought the reality of life kind of collided with what Jesus is doing and saying, and, and he didn't know how to put them together. And for us, the, the real questions might start there. When we think about the reality of life and the reality of who Jesus is, as revealed to us in his word, that's when the real questions might start. When we see who Jesus really is, what he really says, and what he really does, that's when we might start thinking, I don't know. Because the one that we approve of before that is a God made in our image, and that's easy to get along with. But when we start meeting the real Jesus, that's when the doubts and the questions and the fears and the concerns start coming up. Is this really the one that I need? And all of a sudden, joy to the world starts to seem strange. We start to wonder, how does this good news of great joy for all people in a bad news world? Our circumstances, our expectations, they feed our doubts and our fears and our frustrations and our questions, and they can lead us to having second thoughts about who Jesus is. Is this the one? Is he the one I actually need? Now, whether or not we're actually asking that question now, it's a question that we all need to be able to answer. And the good news is that we don't even have to ask it. John asks it for us, and we get to listen in on their conversation. And Jesus responds to the one who prepared the way for him in verse 4. 
Jesus answered, verse 4, Matthew chapter 11, Go and tell what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. Think about the magnitude of what's happening here. Jesus has just been at least somewhat publicly questioned by a prominent figure who was supposed to be his follower. And Jesus doesn't get defensive. He doesn't go off on a tirade. He doesn't start doing this like, well, let me justify all these things. You can notice Jesus' character and his response. Again, a bruised reed, he will not break. A, a faintly burning wick, he will not quench. And, and that's how he responds, with this kindness and gentleness toward John. And you see, in John chapter 5, Jesus' opponents, the officials and Pharisees, they were, they were asking some similar questions, but they were asking it in a way that wasn't as kind. They were questioning the identity of Jesus, and, and Jesus' response is similar to what he gives to John. Look in John chapter 5, verse 33. It says, he points to a couple different witnesses, one of them being John. He says, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. And what was his witness to the truth? That Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 34, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, what do they do? They bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me." Jesus gives three things. He's like, John tells you who I am. My works, they tell you who I am. The scripture, they tell you who I am. He points to those things and saying, these are showing that I am the Messiah, the one who is to come. You need to look to these things and believe them. That's what he says similar to John here in Matthew 11. Jesus doesn't tell him what he's going to do. He doesn't say, hey, just wait. I know it seems weird right now. Just wait. I'm going to the cross, and that'll seem weird too, but then I'm going to be raised again. Just wait until you see all that. Then you'll know, for he doesn't do that. He doesn't give him new information, like, well, John, you may have seen and heard some things, but did you hear about this? He doesn't give him any new information to consider. He knows. John, like the Jewish leaders that questioned him in John chapter 5, if you will not believe these works... If you will not listen to the words, then you will not believe no matter what I do. Because that's a reflection of where your heart really is. It's not a problem on my side with the amount of deeds and words and things I'm doing. It's the unbelief on your side. He knows that if these things, his works that he's doing, don't witness and testify to his identity, to who the reality of who he is, if those things don't work, then he'll never believe. And so John says, or Jesus says to John, Look at my words. Look at my work, the things that you can hear and see. Right? He says, tell him. Tell him what you hear. Tell him what you've seen. The words that he's said are impressive and authoritative. The works that he's done are mighty and unparalleled. They bear witness to the unique identity of Jesus. We don't trust in those things. We show that those things point us onward to the great Messiah that Jesus is. But John had already heard reports about these. You notice like Jesus says, hey, why don't you 
Tell them what you've seen and heard. But John had already seen and heard, right? In a way. He'd heard reports about what Jesus has done. And so this is a, a, a strange response from Jesus. Yeah, just tell him what's already happened. Well, John already knows what happened. So why in the world would Jesus respond the way he does? Because Jesus knows his audience, right? And Jesus knew that John understands himself rightly in terms of Isaiah and the one to come, at least in terms of Isaiah. And so his expectations for the one who was to come was full of prophecy from Isaiah. And now, likely in John's prison, he's had plenty of time to meditate and might have had a lot of meditations on what he knew from the book of Isaiah. And here's how Jesus responds with language from, guess where? Isaiah. Let's look in Isaiah chapter 26. Now remember the words that Jesus responded with to John and catch the similarities that we see in Isaiah. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. Let's skip over to 29, verse 18. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Skip over again to Isaiah chapter 35. Maybe this is the main allusion that Jesus is making in his response. Might be Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5 and 6, that then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Or again, the chapter that we read earlier, Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah 61, verse 1, the spirit of the Lord of, the God, of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So Jesus' response to John, who had likely known those words and maybe had been meditating on those words in prison, Jesus' response to him, full of allusions to Isaiah, is saying, yeah, all that, that's fulfilled in me. I'm doing the things that Isaiah said I was going to do. What Isaiah prophesied has broken in. That's what he's telling John. Think about Isaiah 35, blind, Matthew chapter 9, verse 29, the blind men are healed. The deaf, which is the same term, is mute in chapter 9, verse 33 of Matthew. They are healed by Jesus. The lame that are to be leaping in in Matthew chapter 9, verse 6, healed. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, there's good news that goes out to the poor. The the Sermon on the Mount is, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's how he starts in Matthew 5 through 7. Good news goes to the poor. Liberty is proclaimed to those that are captive when Jesus comes onto the scene and says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand because it's here in me, or when he says to anybody, blessed as he does in the Beatitudes, blessed are the, blessed are the, that's good news, good news, good news, liberty to those who are poor in spirit, to those who are meek, all down the line. He says to those at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, here's good news, here's liberty, you can build your words or build your life on words that won't last and are going to fail and wash away, or you can build your life, here's the good news, on my words, and no matter what storms come, it will never fade away. Or, here's liberty for the captives, oh, you're demon-possessed, I'll cast that out too. And that doesn't even cover what else Jesus has done in the book of Matthew so far. That doesn't cover lepers that he's healed, the storm that he calmed, or the other sick that Jesus had already healed in Matthew's accounts. In other words, Jesus is saying, yeah, all that stuff that Isaiah talked about, I'm fulfilling it and more. 
I'm exceeding all of those things that Isaiah even talked about already. And we're only 10 chapters in. But there's more. Remember John's preaching spoke of imminent judgment. He expect the winnowing fork to be at hand. He expect judgment to come, blessing to come. And he expected it to come from the one who was just to come, the Messiah. Let's look back again in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 26 again. We read 26:19. Listen to 26:20. Come my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury, judgment, has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. Let's go to Isaiah 29. We were in 18 and 19. Let's look at 20. For the ruthless shall come to nothing and the scoffers cease. And all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. Well, let's go to Isaiah chapter 35. We read 5 and 6. Let's look at 4. Say those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with what? With vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Let's look at verse 8, right after what we just said. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Or let's look at Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2. And we're going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And one commentator sums this up well. All four of the Isaiah passages refer to judgment in their immediate context. Thus, Jesus was elusively responding to the Baptist question on, on almost like another level, right? He fills it full of Isaiah and then he goes a little bit further Responding to John's question that the blessings promised for the end time have broken out and prove it is here, even though the judgments are delayed. John can't grasp this concept yet, but Jesus is giving him what he needs. Yeah, I stopped at one of those verses, but that means that I'm here, and all the rest of these things that I've been written have been written, they're gonna happen too. Just give it time. But you can know because of what I've said and because of what I've done, because they fulfill the prophecy that Isaiah had given, that I'm that one, that you don't need to look for another. Jesus gives a better answer than John or any could even hope. Yes, it's an already not yet reality that he gives, but he tells him with, def with definite terms, I'm the one, the one to bring all that Isaiah promised has broken into time, space, history. We sing it. We say that the Lord is come. That's what Jesus is saying to John. Far from being defensive or dodging the question or, or, or brushing it off, Jesus answers head on with good news, proclaiming loudly in his allusions to Isaiah, I'm the one. You've been waiting for me and I'm here. I've broken in. It is sure. Look at what I've done. Amen. So after knowing then, the context of Isaiah, it's as if as Jesus is saying with bold and underlined, no, you do not need to look for another. It may not be exactly what you expected, but all are going to find out one day that it's way better than they could have hoped. All the works of Jesus, many that John didn't even see, don't fit the expectations. But here's what we know from each one of them. They're all better. 
think of the cross. Not many people were saying that Jesus is going to go there. One of his own followers, who he told repeatedly that he's going to die, said, no way this is going to happen. Even up to the end, he couldn't fathom that the Messiah would die by crucifixion. But he did. And that is better news than Peter could have hoped. Because he died in the place of sinners. And the invitation to hear and see his words and work is an invitation for us too. Because the words and work of Jesus testify to who he is. They don't always meet our expectations of what we think he should be or what we'd hope that he is, but they're always better. They're better than what we could have hoped and asked for because this is the Messiah that the world actually needs. Maybe not the one it wants, but the Savior it needs. We may want one that's going to fill all of our expectations, but the one we need doesn't meet our expectations, meets God's expectations. And because he met God's expectations, because he was the perfect one who lived a perfect life, he could then die a sacrificial death so that we could have a relationship, be reconciled to God. So now that we can sing, because Jesus didn't meet our expectations, but he met God's, now we can say, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Because that's the one we actually needed. Not maybe the one we wanted, but the one that we needed. And he stepped into what we needed most, took on flesh, died a sacrificial death so that people, sinners, might be reconciled to God. His words, his work testified that although not everything is yet final, that salvation has definitively come in Jesus. So we can take our doubts, our fears, our questions, all of the things that are stirring in us, our disappointments, and we can take them to Jesus, and we can let his words and his work answer those things in a way that's better than we could have hoped or imagined if we would just trust him. Jesus is the one we need and joy to the world, he has come. We can trust in him, and there is then no need to look elsewhere. He is the one we needed most. He is all that we needed. So now, with, with no another one to look for, what's the response for those who trust in Jesus to be? In verse 6, here's what he finishes out for John. Matthew eleven six. he says, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Here's a beatitude that you don't always count as a beatitude, but here it is. Blessed. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who doesn't look at the words and work of Jesus and reject them and him as the Christ. So in verse 6, there's an implied faith here that, that the words and the work, they aren't irrefutable evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Right? There's all sorts of arguments that you could make about the words and work of Jesus and say, oh, I don't know about this. Where's the judgment that you talked about? John could have said that back in reply. When, when are God's enemies going to be finally and fully put away? John knew that that wasn't happening in his midst. He was stuck in prison. And so what about that? The, the, the words and the work of Jesus don't say everything. They don't give us irrefutable evidence. They point the way to Jesus. But the blessing is for those who receive the testimony of the words of Jesus, of the works of Jesus, and believe in him. Because that's what they point to. It's in him that our faith is to be placed. And then we let all of our expectations, all of our hopes and dreams, we, we place them because we trusted him under his authority and we let him shape them and mold them however he sees fit because he's the one who is the one to come. The words and work, they point to that reality. They don't give us irrefutable evidence, but they point us there and then we take our faith and we place it there and we let him shape and mold all of those things and we get a better response than we could have hoped. 
when Jesus doesn't fit what was hoped for in expectance, the response now for those who, who look at him rightly is to not to question or doubt, but to trust him. That his words and works show us that, that he is one who can be trusted. So we don't just examine all of our questions and doubts. We, we think about where, where do those come from so that we can reshape them, rethink about them in light of who Jesus really is. Now verse 6 ends, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And John's response to that is never heard. We don't get to hear what happens to John in, in response to the news that he heard as Jesus sends back this delegation with news. But we know that Jesus went on in Matthew 11 to commend him as the, the, the most blessed of those who are born. And we know that John dies faithful. He loses his head in prison. And, and from the prison to his head on a platter, those things speak loudly. John is exclaiming through his life and his death that Jesus is the one. Follow after him. Worth even dying for because I'm so sure that he's the one that speaks loudly. Amen. Now, Jesus would go on to teach and do more than John was able to see in here. More that we get to see in here. We get to see more of the life of Jesus. We get to see the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. And that, all the expectations that we could place in that didn't lead to the overthrow of Rome. It led Jesus to a cross. Didn't meet expectations of the time. In fact, that work on the cross that Jesus did would be a stumbling block, would appear as folly to the world. But again, the work of Jesus is better than what could be expected and hoped for. It's good news to any who would dare to believe in him that this truly is the Lamb of God who can take away your sin. It's better news than the overthrow of Rome, better news than the new tax system and new government. It's the news of sin and sinners reconciled to a holy God. And so we can know in Jesus that salvation has definitively broke in and blessed are those who are what? Not offended by that work, who can look to the work of Jesus and trust in him that this is the one we actually needed. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Are those who find their salvation in Jesus are the ones who are blessed. And we know as we look around that it's not seen in full yet. We might be imprisoned. We might lose our head, but we can know that one day it will finally and fully break in because of what Jesus has done. We trust him. We trust him that it has definitively come in him, but that it will finally and fully come one day because we know him and we trust him. And until then, Jesus gives direction similar to what he does here to the delegation he sends back to John. Did you hear what he told John's, the delegation back to John? He says, go and tell. Because we're so sure that Jesus is the one that we actually needed, that salvation has broken in, we get instructions very similar to that. Till the day comes when it's finally and fully here, here's what we do as believers. Go and tell. Go and tell. And surely, because he's the one that we actually needed and has died and rose again, surely we can know that he's with us always, even to the end of the age. Church, let's pray together.